Tonight I want to speak about two more uh, qualities of inner beauty because they are the uh, forces of purification. And this whole path of awakening is understood to be the path of awakening, the path of purification. And when we say purification, what we mean is, well, on this path we purify our speech and behavior of the transgressive defilements, the, the unskillful states of mind that we act out causing harm to others. And we purify our speech and behavior this way. We also continue with practice and purify our mind temporarily of the obsessive defilements, the things that you've seen today that you just obsess about, you know, sadness, anger, grief, joy, frustration, depression, anxiety. Mindfulness subdues them, purifying the mind temporarily of the, this kind of obsessing. But it's the practice of vipassana or insight that we're doing here that is more subtle and yet more powerful in that it's insight that purifies our understanding. Not just purifying our intention in speaking and acting, not just purifying our mind temporarily, but purifying our understanding of the latent misunderstandings, defilements, that can erupt at any time that we're not right on it. And we've seen that. So this is the path, the path of purification, purifying our intention in speaking and acting, purifying our mind, and purifying our understanding. So the development of these paramis, or the forces of purity, is, well, part and parcel. It is the essence of this path of awakening. One of the paramis, of course, is wisdom. And as that is purified, as our understanding is purified through Vipassana practice, then wisdom parami matures. But tonight I want to speak about two of the paramis, two of these forces that, that kind of go hand in hand. And one of them is resolve, or aditana. It is the resoluteness or determination of the mind. And the second that I want to speak about is wiriya, or energy. Now why should we consider resolve and energy as qualities of inner beauty? Think about a life lived without resolve. A life that is just spent in dissipated distraction. No resolve. That is just irresolute, wavering, where there are many beginnings and few endings. Sound familiar? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. You know, the Buddha was uncompromising. I mean, he just was so thorough and so uncompromising. I mean, we all, hey, our aditana parami is not yet mature. That's all 
We see. It's not yet mature. We see the wisdom of maturing it, though. And we can see that when the mind is resolved, it radiates an inner beauty of confidence, determination, resoluteness, clarity, understanding. Okay. And energy, without energy, nothing is accomplished. Nothing. Even to bake bread, you have to have some resolve. You have to hold that intention for a few hours and you have to exert some energy. Without energy, our actions, we can't avoid acting in the world, but when they are unenergized, our actions and behaviors are insignificant. When they are energized, then our actions can rise to the occasion, whatever is required. And this path of awakening requires everything you got. So together, these two point to the quality of steadfastness and accomplishment, a kind of inner strength that is both steadfast, meaning resolute, determined, a lot of stamina, and energetic, willing to meet any situation, resilient in the face of inevitable change and challenges. And so together, these two qualities we can see are really the foundation almost upon which we develop the rest of our path, our practice. Now, while they are wholesome, pure qualities of mind, there is a danger in arousing them in an unskillful way, being too strident, too effortful, too ambitious, not balanced. And on this path of awakening, we are going to get caught on that end of the spectrum sometimes, too, where our aspiration and our resoluteness turns into a grim, steadfast, tight mind. Hopefully we'll catch that sooner than later. And sometimes we're going to find ourselves using our energy, mental energy and physical energy, in a way that is just pure ambition. Also, not successful in purifying the mind. When we talk about the maturity of the forces of purity, we're talking about a balanced mind. And a balanced mind is very subtle. It's not hanging out at either end of the spectrum on any parameter. Very subtle, very refined, but, or I should say and, it is what's required for the long haul. 
And this path of awakening, you may have noticed, is more like a marathon than a sprint, as Sayadaw Tejaniya would say. So even though resolve is a less well-known and spoken of attribute on the path, energy or right effort is the topic that the Buddha spoke about the most. Both are essential to recognize, to cultivate, to bring into balance, and to mature, to progress on this path of awakening. So I want to speak about them both in some greater detail so that we can begin to recognize them in our own practice and we can begin to see when they are out of balance, either deficient or excessive, and begin to understand how to, how to work with them, how to bring them into the service of awakening rather than being dissipated and, and uh, using them for just pure ambition. So resolve. Some of you may know the story, but let me just quickly summarize it. We live in the time of Gautama Buddha, who lived 2,600 years ago. Hundreds of thousands of lifetimes before that. Eons and eons ago, there was another Buddha, Dipankara Buddha, that lived. And at the time that Dipankara Buddha was living, there was an ascetic named Sumedha, who had been practicing for a long time, had purified his mind, had done all the work required, that if he heard a single teaching from Dipankara Buddha, he would have been instantly liberated, fully enlightened, with a single teaching. That's how clean his mind was, how pure his well, paramis, how developed his paramis were already. One day, Sumedha went into town to collect his alms, his daily food, as, was the, as is the habit of renunciates, and saw that there was a lot of excitement going on in the village, asked and inquired, well, what's, what's up? And found out that Dipankara Buddha was going to be visiting that village later in the day. So, he too got excited, wanted to see a Buddha, and went to the roadway where the Buddha would be coming and prepared a, a section of the pathway for Dipankara Buddha. When Dipankara Buddha came into view and came near to the ascetic Sumedha, Sumedha, with the purity of his mind, saw the radiance, the nobility, the uh, grandeur of a Buddha. And he was so impressed and so struck by what he saw that this aspiration arose in his mind that one day he too would like to become a Buddha. Understanding that a Buddha is liberated and one who acts compassionately to relieve the suffering of all beings. So he made this aspiration silently to himself. Dipankara Buddha being a Buddha knew something was going on on the side of the road, checked out the uh, mind of the ascetic Sumedha, and realized that he just had made the aspiration to become a Buddha. Did a quick scan of his karmic profile, and uh, 
<laughs> and confirmed to the ascetic Sumedha that indeed one day he would become a Buddha. Thereupon, the ascetic Sumedha became a Bodhisattva. Became a Bodhisattva because of the purity of his aspiration and having it recognized by a living Buddha and confirmed. Well, that was not the end for ascetic Sumedha. That was just the beginning. Because even though his mind was already pure enough to become immediately enlightened if he'd heard a single teaching of Dipankara, by making the aspiration to become a Buddha, he undertook the journey of further perfecting the paramis. And subsequently lived through hundreds of lifetimes in the most trying, difficult, challenging situations in order to further strengthen all of these qualities that we're talking about. More generosity, more loving-kindness, more patience, more energy, more generosity. And in fact, it wasn't until the mind stream of that ascetic Sumedha was born 2,500 years ago, 2,600 years ago, in the form of Prince Siddhartha, who in, this, in that very lifetime fulfilled his aspiration and became a Buddha. What would it take to keep an aspiration in the mind for hundreds of lifetimes and to bring it to fruition, completion? Resolve. <laughs> and energy. Right? Among other things. Well, the that's what a Buddha does. A Buddha makes the paramis, these forces of purity, the default setting of his mind. Meaning, they are the first response of the mind in, any, in every situation. Patience instead of impatience. Loving kindness instead of irritation. Generosity instead of miserliness. Wisdom and understanding instead of confusion and bewilderment. We're on a noble path. Because we, too, are undertaking the same transformation of our minds. It's a journey. It's a journey of awakening. It's a journey of purification. And even in the few days you've been here practicing, you can see that with effort and energy and continuity and resoluteness and determination, things change, even in a few days. Now imagine a lifetime of doing this, or hundreds of lifetimes doing this, if you have the patience. You can see where the mind would be. You can see what qualities would be foremost in the mind in response. This is aditana. This is resoluteness. The resolve, well, in this case, it's a resolve to awaken, to be a benefit to and relieve the suffering of all beings. So to be resolved, you can see, means to be uh, clear, determined, resolute, stable, steadfast, single-minded in a general way, 
purposeful, unwavering. The image that came to my mind as I was thinking about what resolve is, you know the waters that drain out of these mountains, forming into the Colorado River with the aspiration of reaching the ocean. I don't know if they ever do, but it's as if all the waters in this area aspire to reach the ocean. And once they fall from the sky as rain this afternoon, that's where they're headed. And they don't stop until they get there. Whatever obstacle, no matter how hard, how steep, how whatever they meet, they find a way to work with it, to fulfill that aspiration of getting to the ocean. It's not, you know, it's not angry, it's not, it's just resolved, it's just determined, it's, it's going to find a way, no matter what the obstacles, to get there. And that's the quality of resolve that we too arouse in our mind. What we can see is that struggling, striving, ambition, these are contaminated resolve. We get caught there, but we see that this, this kind of resolve leads to suffering. It's not about becoming someone, having the ambition to achieve some personal goal, because awakening is not a personal achievement. It's a manifesting of conditions and causes that give rise to their inevitable result. And that's what we nurture. We nurture the causes, we nurture the conditions, and in time the result occurs. Why is it important to have this kind of resolve? Because it stabilizes the mind and it gives a strength to the mind to continue in the face of what appear to be obstacles, challenges, difficulties, but with the right resolve and, I might say, right understanding, there are no obstacles on the path of awakening. There are only opportunities. Just as there are no obstacles for the rain that fell this afternoon to reach the ocean, other than people taking it out for irrigation along the way. But <laughs> other than that, it would get there. Okay, so what prevents this kind of resolve in our own minds? The usual hindrances. We can see resolve contaminated by doubt, indecision, when there's wavering, wandering, meandering, hesitancy, as I say, many, many startings and few finishes. Many beginnings, few endings. When we lack the confidence to proceed, well, willingness to face whatever we appear, whatever appears. I've told this story and I still amaze myself telling it. A few years ago, Rodney Smith reminded me that <clears throat> when I first went on staff at the Meditation Center in Massachusetts in 60, 70, I can't remember, memory gone, um, 
I'd done one two-week retreat. One two-week retreat like this. Went on staff at the meditation center. First day that I was there working, I was up in the attic with Rodney Smith. We were having a conversation about Nibbana, as if we knew anything about Nibbana. And Rodney reminded me that I told him with absolute, utter, unshakable confidence, no doubt, that in this lifetime I'll realize the Dhamma. I had no idea what I was saying. <laughs> I didn't know what was going to be involved, but I had no doubt. My mind was already resolved that that's the direction I'm going. And even though it took years to discover what's really involved and just how challenging it can appear, uh, the resoluteness does not depend on full knowledge. You can be resolved to do something without knowing what's involved to fulfill it. Resolve is a mental muscle. It is a muscle we can develop, and it can be then be used however we assign it, whatever, to do whatever we assign it to do. Sometimes resolve is contaminated by sloth and torpor or laziness. Sometimes we just don't have any energy to move in our direction of our aspiration, our choice. No fire in the mind, really, to burn up the obstacles, to confront the obstacles, to outlast the obstacles. When we consider the experiences we meet on this path of awakening as an obstacle, we end up in a negotiating, debating, uh, blaming, victimized position. That is disempowered. When we understand that these things which look like obstacles are what are required to strengthen these qualities of mind, already there's a willingness to engage them. It's not a personal thing. It's not a personal success or failure issue. It's a matter of, is the resolve there? Is the energy there? Is the aspiration clear? How long will it take? That's, all, that's the only question that you have to ask. How long will it take? Plan on a marathon. But when we have energy, when we have confidence, and we're clear in our aspiration, then there's a willing engagement with what appear to be challenging conditions. But as Trungpa Rinpoche said, you know, it would be better if we never began this journey. But since we've already begun, it would be better that we finish. <laughs> so I'm reminded that, uh, or Joseph has told the story of, you know Deepama, you know Deepama, the uh, Indian woman who practiced in this tradition with one of our teachers, uh, Manindra, in India? And she's just an extraordinary yogini. I mean, just unbelievable depth of concentration and uh, liberating insight in short amount of time. Just fantastic stories about her. If you haven't read her book, I encourage you to. 
on her one of her last trips to America to teach over at the Meditation Center, she said to Joseph, and Joseph had practiced with her in India, she said to Joseph, you know, Joseph, you ought to sit for three days. And Joseph thought, well, that's okay. I do a couple of months of practice a year. What's the problem with sitting three days? And she said, no, no, no. I mean, sit down, don't get up for three days. And Joseph just burst out laughing, thinking, well, that's ridiculous. Not, not going to happen. And when he expressed that to Deepama, she said, don't be lazy. Like, <laughs> sit down, don't get up for three days. Don't be lazy. Well, you can tell she's coming from a different place of understanding and purity than most of us have. Nevertheless, what would it take to even sit down for 20 minutes once every day? That's resolve. But that's maybe our level of resolve, but that's resolve. If we work on that, then we can develop from there. Sometimes resolve is contaminated by attachment or ambition or self-assertion. Whenever we get attached to the object of our resolve or the goal of our resoluteness or our aspiration, you can be sure we've personalized it into a journey of pride or failure. The only two results. One end of the spectrum, if you succeed in a personal achievement, pride. If you fail in what was to be a personal achievement or accomplishment, blame and disrepute. Luckily, thankfully, awakening isn't a personal achievement. It's not a personal accomplishment. It's an understanding of what are the causes and conditions that give rise to the end of suffering and working to develop them. Now, I mentioned that resolve is a mental muscle. You know, anger is a mental muscle, and we've worked that We've worked that muscle a lot. We've got anger ready to respond in any number of situations. And we're trying to develop love as a mental muscle or loving kindness as a mental muscle, hopefully to be there to respond to aversion or any other opportunity where having quick access to genuine loving kindness would be a benefit. Well, resolve is the same. But how do you develop resolve? Well, our teacher said Upandita in Burma, there's a certain place in practice. I mean, we can, we can say, you know, when you sit down, resolve to sit still for half hour. That helps. That, that starts building resolve. Or resolve, make, make, have the aspiration and make the resolve to uh, notice all the intentions to move in a sitting. This is a way to develop resolve. You, you, you start with little, little things, little, little, little things that you want to do. Ask your mind to do it, then just do your practice and see what happens. Well, at some point in your practice, as your practice gets more mature, working with resolve becomes really a significant part of your practice where the teacher will give you resolves. Okay, now I want you to do this. Resolve in your mind to do X, Y, Z. And so you go try it, and you do. Sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. Well, that, that's the way you develop resolve. 
in time, the power of resolve becomes more mature. And when you tell your mind to do something, or ask your mind, it's not like you tell it out of, you do this. It's more like you ask, may my mind, boom. Well, I was in that stage of practice, and Saito Bandita, one day I, I went to him and gave my report, and he says, okay, now I want you to resolve this. And he said something that I just burst out laughing, and I said, well, that's, <laughs> that's just not, I don't even believe that's possible. How can, how, how can that happen? He said, ah, no, just, just do it. I mean, just, ah, just try it. You know, what the heck? You know, just try it. So I said, why bother? But I did, of course. When your teacher tells you to do something, you do it. At least you try. So I went back to my room, sat down, said, okay, made my mind, plum, closed my eyes. Instantly, the mind did it. How'd that happen? The resolve is, as I said, a mental muscle. When it is trained, it will do what you wish it to do. It's not because of intention. It's not because of striving. It's not because hoping it happens. It's because the mind is trained, and it will do it. Wow, this was so, uh, well, uh, inspiring. It was so amazing to see it, because then, from thereafter, practice is all about resolve, working to develop resolve and to resolve certain both insights and uh, concentrated stage jhanas and things like that. And the mind just becomes, in working with resolve, the mind becomes so flexible and so pliable and so dynamic and so responsive and in a way that you just, well, you can't imagine how malleable and how alive the mind is when it's not limited by its attachments and aversions and personality stuff. Sometimes resolve is contaminated by aversion. One is fear of failure. Fearing that we're going to fail or that we might fail. And so we don't enter the journey. We don't take up the path with the sincerity and the confidence that's required to fulfill it because of, of fear. And so our resolve is already contaminated in the beginning. And without resolve, sure enough, there's wavering, there's dissoluteness, there's dissipation. Well, you know what? We're working to develop this resolve. We're working to bring resolve to maturity. We've all experienced lots of, you know, lack of resolve, wavering resolve, no resolve. Well, it's painful. That's what it is. It's painful to have that kind of unstable resoluteness in the mind, and we see it. There is a prescription for what to do when you notice it. We can train the mind in resolve. There are many ways that aversion undermines our aspiration, undermines our resolve. 
where we give up, we think it's too much, we blame others, blame our parents, blame our teachers, blame conditions. As I mentioned before, when resolve is tenuous, aversion can get a toehold in the mind. But when the mind is resolute, aversion, attachment, fear, all of them have a much more difficult time becoming established in the mind. The perfection of resolve is energetic. It's confident. It's also patient and persevering. When the mind is willing, adaptable, flexible, joyful, tolerant, forbearing, what can stop you? Think about it. If you're clear in your aspiration, if you're resolved to do what is required to manifest it, and you're patient, who can stop you? What can stop you? Nothing. There's no obstacle. It's a matter of patience, time, effort, energy, and the causes and conditions will eventually, and with understanding more quickly, come to support the realization of your aspiration. Wow. Anything is possible if you put your mind to it. So that's resolve, the muscle of steadfastness, of, uh, that involves clarity and understanding. But resolve without energy doesn't get anywhere, doesn't accomplish anything. And so energy too is one of the forces of purification in the mind. And when I speak about energy, I want to distinguish the energy of being willing and being persevering as opposed to the energy of, excuse me, of being forceful or uh, hard or just uh, tolerant. It's a very different energy from being forceful and being persevering. And the energy required on this journey is more the former. Persevering, balanced, being willing in every situation. Now, I think the Buddha spoke about right effort and energy more than any other topic because, well, it's so easy to not be balanced in our efforting, in our energy. And what this means is that right effort 
or the energy that's required in each moment is a continual process of adjusting to conditions. What worked yesterday as skillful energy may not work today. Conditions are different. It takes a different understanding, a different energy, a different intention, a different continuity of energy. And so there's a constant adjustment to how much energy is needed, how it's being applied, how precisely it's being applied, whether it's too much or too little, and whether it's doing, doing the work that we ask it to do. Right effort or energy is not a one-size-fits-all. One size doesn't fit everyone in the room at any one time, and one size doesn't fit any one of us for very long. We are constantly growing and changing, and, and conditions are moving us forward. So too, the energy required is going to be equally changeable. So in the beginning of practice, bringing our heavily conditioned and reactive mind to greet and meet awareness takes a tremendous amount of effort. It's like trying to, well, it's a Sisyphean challenge of rolling that rock up the hill. It's like getting the flywheel going of a huge, inert, heavily conditioned, habituated mind, getting it moving getting it a little bit more flexible, getting it kind of energized to, well, see things differently. And it takes just, well, it takes a lot of energy. But as we move the mind, as we turn on the mind, turn on the light of the mind, and start to work it, it's like, you know, like picking up a clump of, clay, modeling clay, out of the freezer, you know, and it's like you try to work it, and it's like, you know, it's just like it's unpleasant because it just cracks and falls apart in pieces, and and your hands get cold, and you just suffer, and you just want to put it away. Well, that's what the mind is like when we start. It's like, I I don't want to work with this mind. It breaks too easy. It reacts. It gets upset. It gets fearful. It gets, you know, it's it's just unpleasant to work with that mind. But no other choice. <laughs> that's, that's where that's where we start. So you got to work with this. You got to work with this clump of clay out of the freezer. But you know, as you keep working it and you keep putting some heat to it, and you kind of give it a little attention, a little energy, and you keep nudging it and pulling it and twisting it. Eventually, the mind becomes very pliable, very warmed up. It's pliable. It's adaptable. You can mold it around anything. But it takes effort. It takes energy. It doesn't happen by wishing it to happen, hoping it happens. It takes energy. The Buddha's path of awakening is called the middle path. It's the path between indulgent sensuality and ascetic renunciation. Either one of those is not going to get you far on the path. But it is a path between aggressive and passive between reactive and passive. It's a path of openness, willingness. 
and a, a, a responsivity or an ability to respond to the conditions of life rather than react to them. When the Buddha or the Bodhisattva was practicing and trying to find the way to the end of suffering, had not yet found the middle path, he was striving as an ascetic and he was really torturing the body and pushing the mind and just following these very austere and painful practices. And an image came to his mind, a memory came to his mind of when he was a young boy. And one day while watching his father plow a field, a ritual field in a, in a, in a kind of a harvest ceremony or whatever, ritual, I, the Bodhisattva, the prince, was sitting in the shade of a rose apple tree and he was just kind of relaxed and comfortable and alert and he spontaneously entered uh, the uh, first jhana or an absorbed and exalted state of concentration and tranquility. And it just happened spontaneously and when he was striving and struggling so hard as an ascetic he remembered that and said wow maybe that's the way to find the path of awakening. Instead of all this torture of the body and struggle, maybe just being relaxed, alert, attentive, comfortable in body, comfortable in mind, maybe that's the way to find the path to the end of suffering. I mean, it seems like a no-brainer now from this perspective, but that wasn't so obvious then, and it's not so obvious to us now, even though we have this teaching that the path to awakening is the middle path. Okay. The energy that's required on this journey is of four kinds. There's the energy to avoid, the energy to overcome, the energy to initiate, and the energy to support. What do we need to avoid? Well, Mary Carr wrote this poem that I heard someone recite on NPR. You know, Terry Gross on NPR interviewing somebody, some poet, who was talking about this poem that she shares with her clients. And the poem is by Mary Carr. And she read the poem. And one of the lines in the poem really <laughs> grabbed my attention. She said, the mind is a dangerous neighborhood. Don't go there alone. <laughs> you know what? Our minds can be a dangerous neighborhood. There are places in our mind that are dangerous to go without mindfulness. Don't go there alone. Take your mindfulness with you because if we go there without alertness, awareness, really being willing to see the way things are, we're going to get entangled in old fears, old blames, old hurts, old stories that cause a lot of suffering. That's dangerous. When you have your mindfulness with you and you see those memories and you see that fear and you see that jealousy and you see that envy and you see that, mindfulness protects you from getting entangled in it. Take your mindfulness with you. Avoid those dangerous places in the mind. That was the Buddha's first uh, instruction. You know, avoid. If, if possible, avoid those people, places, things, behaviors that cause 
that give rise to and condition unwholesome states of mind in you. Don't go there. Avoid them. Now, does this mean we avoid it out of aversion? Like we have a lot of hatred and irritation and dislike of it? This is wisdom that says, you know, if I go there, I'm going to get caught in, you know, my mind is going to want to lean towards desire and obsession or anger and fear and blame and jealousy, whatever. Take mindfulness with you when you go. As the Buddha said, first, avoid. If you can't avoid, then take mindfulness with you when you go and only stay as short a time as you can. <laughs> and uh, don't linger. You know, take mindfulness with you, keep it quick. <laughs> so when I was first practicing with them, Upandita, the Burmese Saito that we practiced with for 30 years now. He heard that my name was Steve Armstrong. So he got this big kick. I was reporting to him every day, 2 o'clock, and I was still struggling with practice. I was, I was not a happy camper. Didn't have much uh, understanding. And so I was really struggling with practice, having a very difficult time. And uh, he used to, when I come in, he'd say, Oh, Mindstrong. Ha <laughs> 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 Mindstrong. Because he knew a little bit, just that much English. He says, Is your mind strong today? <laughs> Mindstrong? What's that mean? Is your mind strong today? Do you know what, it, you know what that means? Is your mind strong? Was your mind strong today? I don't know. I didn't know what to say. <laughs> I was just kind of like, Well, that's how unclear I was. I now understand that it takes strength of mind to look at, to open to what's in the mind, and to bear it. We have fear. There's fear embedded in the mind. Do we have the strength of mind to look at it? We have anger in the mind. Can we have the strength of mind to look at the anger? We have hurt in the mind. Do we have the strength of mind to feel it? What does it take? Strength of mind. Strength of mind is awareness. If we have strength of mind, we can look at anything. We can see everything. Mindfulness leads to strength of mind. This inner strength is really the quality of inner beauty. Because when we're willing to look at, and able to, really, look at and see what's in the mind, it's a beautiful thing. Not the mind, the willingness, the ability to look. The stuff of the mind, man, it comes from, well, from cesspool to heaven. It's all, everything in between. But the ability to see it, the willingness to see it, is what's beautiful. Because when we see it, we have a choice. We can either get entangled in it, or we can be free of it. Without seeing it, no choice. You'll definitely get entangled in it. We have a history of that. We know it all too well. The second energy is to overcome those unwholesome states of mind that do happen to get a toehold in the mind and arise. Now, I, this, this, this is a... This, this energy needs some explication. 
the energy to overcome unwholesome states of mind that have already arisen. Doesn't that sound like get rid of them? If we approach our anger with an attitude, I got to get rid of it. If we approach our fear with the attitude, I got to get rid of it. If we approach our jealousy, our grief, our loss, our pain, whatever, with the attitude, the misunderstanding, oh, I got to overcome this, I got to get rid of it, we are going to struggle unsuccessfully and suffer more. What does it take to overcome unwholesome mental states that have already arisen? They arise. It's flowering. There's the story. There's the feelings in the mind. There's the conditioned feelings and sensations in the body. Here it is, just flowering away, just kind of bubbling up like a ever-present, ever-ready, old faithful reaction. Awareness. Can we be aware of it? Can we be aware of anger when it arises? Can we be aware of the story when it, when it arises? Can we be aware of the sensations in the body when it arises? Can, be, can we be aware of the unpleasant feeling in the mind that accompanies it? That's all. If we are aware, we overcome the unwholesome state. Not by, not by defeating it, not by struggling with it, not by, you know, beating it up but by seeing it clearly for what it is. And it can't, they only can survive, these unwholesome states of mind only survive when you're not aware of them. They can't exist in the light of awareness for long. It is because of visiting forces known as defilements that we suffer, the Buddha said. These visiting forces of defilements. They're visiting. They're not permanent residents in here. If we see them at the door, meaning whatever door they arise at, the eye door, the ear door, the nose door, the mind door, if we meet them at the door, we don't have to let them in. But once they're in, we can show them the door out through awareness. This kind of energy is the energy of willingness. Are we willing? Can we arouse a willingness to feel these unpleasant states of mind? They're unpleasant. We avoid them. We try to get rid of them. We blame others for them. Right effort, wise energy is just the willingness to feel them. Now, I'm going to ask kind of an obvious, maybe even a silly question, but did anybody have any, anything unpleasant in their mind today? <laughs> All right. And here we are trying to overcome, avoid, deny, omit, you know, all of them, and they still come. We might just as well say, you know what? It's going to happen. There's going to be unpleasantness in life. There's going to be unpleasant mental states. There's going to be unpleasant physical sensations. There's going to be a lot of unpleasantness in life. Let's face it. Let's just say that's the way it's going to be. I mean, that's, that's true. If we're going to experience it anyway, why not experience it willingly? 
When we don't make that commitment or don't have that aspiration or don't have that resolve, we'll, 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 we'll pretend that we're somehow going to avoid it. And there isn't going to be a day go by that there's not some kind of unpleasantness. So let's see if we can turn the mind around and say, you know what, since it is, well, a fact of life, I aspire to open to and willingly feel the unpleasantness that is inevitable, that is bound to come. Can you see what that would do to the mind if we could do that? Can you see? The mind would just stop fearing unpleasantness. You don't fear it. It's going to happen anyway. Why fear it? The mind would be open to. I won't say excited about it, but at least it's open to when it comes. Be with it. It's just a feeling. It's not the end of life. You're not going to be annihilated. You're not going to disappear. You're not going to have scars because you feel sadness or feel unpleasantness. It's just, and yet, so much of our life is spent in strategies to avoid unpleasantness. We have all failed utterly. We haven't succeeded in all our strategizing. Give it up. I mean, it's like, okay, this is the way it is. What a relief to have the knowledge and to be able to accept and acknowledge this, this is the way it is. This is the way it is for me, for now. It's not every day, all day, unpleasant by any means. But when we resist it, are unwilling to experience it, we make more through our conditioning, through our reaction. Hmm. The third energy is the proactive energy, initiating energy, the energy to arouse wholesome states of mind that have not yet arisen. Kamala was teaching you metta meditation the other day. Even in the even when there's no metta arising in the mind, we can cultivate it. If you arouse the energy in your practice, you can arouse wholesome state of mind that wasn't there before. Or compassion, like she did today. We can do this with, well, any of the wholesome states of mind, whether it's generosity or kindness, compassion, loving kindness, tranquility, equanimity, non-reactivity, faith. There's ways to arouse all of them when they're not yet present. But it takes knowing that it's possible. Having that aspiration, having the knowledge, and then having the willingness, the aspiration, applying the energy to, to arouse them. It allows us to be creative. Don't like the way your life's going? Don't like the way you're feeling today? You got a choice. Change it. Arouse, put your mind somewhere else. We don't have to wallow in the difficulties, the challenges, the unpleasant states of mind that come. We don't want to be in denial of them, but we don't have to wallow in them either. Okay, when the mind is neutral, or when the mind is even caught up in some aversion, we can develop loving kindness. We don't have to wait until we're feeling loving and then develop loving kindness. We do it when there isn't any. We develop it. 
Carlos Castaneda, one of those great spiritual teachers of the last century, and his teacher, Don Juan. Great, a lot of wisdom in those books. Carlos writes, Don Juan assured me that in order to accomplish the feat of making myself miserable, I had to work in a most intense fashion, and that it was absurd. I had now realized I could work just the same in making myself complete and strong. The truth is in what one emphasizes, he said. We either make ourselves miserable or we make ourselves strong. The amount of work is the same. You know that uh, the space shuttle that they used to send up and no longer will send up from Florida up to the space station? Yeah, they send it up and floats around for, floats, it's on a journey for a couple of days, and eventually it gets to the, the, the space station. But I've read, I've heard, that the sh shuttle is off course 98% of the time. 98% of the time. From the time it leaves to the time it gets there, off course. And yet, it still gets there. Why? Innumerable mid-course corrections. <laughs> right? As soon as you realize it's off course, oh, make a correction. Oh, it's off course again, make another correction. Off Our practice is just like that. We try to be mindful. We try to find the breath. We try to be loving. We try to be patient. We try to be... We fail. I mean, we're off course most of the time. But when you recognize you're off course, we can make mid-course correction and bring us back in alignment with our aspiration. If we don't look, we won't see. That's what mindfulness is, is to see whether we're on track or off course. And if we're off course, make a correction. The fourth effort, just to wrap up this section of the talk, is about nourishing the wholesome qualities of mind that have already arisen. We know when unwholesome states of mind arise, if we pay attention to them, if we're mindful of them, they get weaker. You know, if you pay attention to anger and you don't just kind of keep feeding yourself that story, you pay attention to it, you really notice what's going on there, you understand the nature of anger or the nature of any other unwholesome state of mind, eventually, okay, it calms down, it settles down, it dissipates. When wholesome states of mind arise, tranquility, equanimity, confidence, clarity, understanding, when they arise, we also want to be mindful of them. Because being mindful of wholesome states of mind strengthens them. Being mindful of unwholesome states of mind weakens them. So even though, you know, when, when that period of time each day, whenever it is, that brief little window of of time when a hey, practice is going good. You know, whatever, however you experience that, you feel calm, you feel clear, you feel confident, you feel whatever, take note of it. Really register it on your mind. Let your mindfulness recognize it and acknowledge it because that's what strengthens it. Don't minimize even a short period of time of good practice. It's not going to happen either. Struggle and then suddenly everything's good. 
it's a gradual, <laughs> it's a gradual growing of more continuity to the wholesome states of mind. Strengthen them when they arise. There's a lot of little adjustments to get the space shuttle to the station. There's a lot of little adjustments to get the mind to liberation. Whatever you do throughout the day is an opportunity to be aware. And the more we can bring every activity into the field of awareness, the more momentum there is, the more understanding there is, the more liberation there is. This is our path, and as Saito Utejaniya confirms, when you are continuously aware, wisdom unfolds naturally. So let's just sit quietly for a moment, let the words quiet down. <laughs>